Welcome to the podcast of data and analytic in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have got Danny Leung. Danny is the CEO of the GHL Group of Company. GHL Group is a payment acquirer in ASEAN region. Basically, what they do is they help the banks and the mobile payment wallets provider to acquire merchant into the system. And also from the merchant side, basically what they do is they help to collect the payment from the bank, from the e-wallet, and consolidate all of them into one single channel and provide the payment to, that they, they collect back to the merchant. Danny will talk a lot about how the payment industry is working in the ASEAN region and the role of the GHL group of company are playing in this region. But most importantly is also where the payment industry is going in the ASEAN region. On top of that, as EGSL are acquiring and processing a large number of the payment transaction every single day, Danny and his team are now starting to look at what are the value-added services that they can provide using the data and analytics to look at all of these data that they are collecting and be able to come up new services. I think if you want to understand about where the payment industry is at and how data and analytics are able to help you to generate new revenue stream purely from looking at the data that you are collected. This is one of the episodes that you will not want to miss and you want to hear what Danny has got to share. Again, if you have got any question for me or Danny or any other guest, please send us a voice message in the link. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Danny. Thank you so much for sparing your busy schedule to come and chat with me about the running payment service provider company use and, and how do you guys use data and analytics, especially in this timing of pandemic of the COVID-19. I think this is becoming a lot more important considering that we are supposed to take cash. So thank you so much for coming on to the show. No worries, uh, much obliging. And uh, I guess we have more time nowadays with the lockdown, so uh, not an issue. <laughs> Indeed, I think we do have quite a bit of time. So I'll probably will start a little bit light with the interview. Tell us a bit about your early career. How well do you think your career at Accenture Management Consulting and also founding your own IT and management consulting company have prepared you in running a payment service company across multiple countries? I mean, it's a long history on that. Uh, basically, I was with Accenture. Once I graduated from the UK, I joined Accenture and I was with them for nine years. And I'm already doing uh, telco consulting, right? Uh, but it gave, us, gave me a very good, because I, uh, I was an accounting and financial graduate. So it gave me a very good foundation in IT, in business operations as well, and strategy. And also across the region as well. I the opportunity to work across the region. So the ASEAN region is nothing new to me even from my early days in Accenture. Yeah, Accenture definitely gave me the foundations of any big IT-based company needs owners of it that um, one needs to know. 
Then after that, uh, I left and uh, started up an adaptive solution, small consulting firm as well as a automotive software provider for the uh, car manufacturers in Malaysia. That actually gave me a very good startup and entrepreneur experience. Right. It's small. I mean, we grew up to about 25 odd people, uh, but it was a good size for someone like me to learn back then. Right. Then we got bought over by Datascan, which then I became the CEO for Datascan and rebranded it to be Kuskapi. That made things change a bit more because it's a regional company. It's totally different business. It's in the retail point of sale business for FMB. And it's a small PLC in Malaysia. Right. And it gives me a good foundation to get into the PLC world and also to expose myself into the corporate governance side of things in the PLC world. Then the real thing happened, right? Turning GHL. GHL is basically, uh, to me, it's a real thing because it is, it is a large PLC in Malaysia. Mm. Being a fintech, I seriously needed a lot of my experience from my previous companies. Things like my regional IT, business operations and strategy experience, pull them all together. In the meantime, I had to learn about payments because I didn't know anything about payments back then. And really to work with the team to have up new payment strategies in the fintech space to actually quote unquote, take over or conquer ASEAN. So, and corporate governance in uh, GHI is even more prevalent as we are in the financial services industry. So all this put together, I think mean, um, no regrets. I mean, all those components, all those things I learned more and big previously, all that they contributed to how I am today in GHI. Apart from the corporate governance in your day-to-day role, what is your usual day life for you as CEO of the GHL group? Um, it's actually all about meetings, meetings, and meetings. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I don't do much work. <laughs> I mean, I don't paperwork per se, except for signing documents and doing approval. But my real value is actually meeting up with my, internally, I meet up with my head, uh, head of departments, my business heads, my country heads, to help them to solve problems, to help them to strategize their business or their operations. Externally, I would uh, meet up with partners, key customers, and even regulators to see how we can collaborate with them to you know, bring things forward for the company as well as for GHR as well as for their own company. And lastly, actually, the other big part of uh, being a group CEO in a listed company is actually investor relations. Mm-hmm. I do meet up fund managers, brokers, PEs to actually uh, make them understand payment, not Payment is not something that everybody understands. So uh, make them understand about payment, make them understand what we are doing and updating them, our progress and our plans moving forward. So that's pretty much my day-to-day. And of course, I travel around the region, visiting my country heads and again, helping them to strategize their businesses. So although many of our audience in ASEAN use GSL, GHL services on a daily basis, but they may not be familiar directly with the company could you please tell a bit more about GHL for our audience, especially the significant role that it is playing in leverage, uh, revolutionizing how the money flows in the ASEAN region? Basically, GHL is all about payments, right? And all about being in ASEAN and doing payments in ASEAN, right? So we are not, I mean, we, we do have a uh, staff in Australia helping opters to provide them with the entire payment network which they on-sell to the Australian banks. But our primary focus is actually in ASEAN, right? And uh, we are basically in five main countries in ASEAN, Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, Indonesia, and Cambodia. Uh, What do we do? 
we are what we call in the industry called payment acquirers. What that means is basically enabling merchants, big or small, the ability to accept cashless payment, whether it's a credit card payment, a debit card payment, e-wallet for the online world, is basically whether it's even a online banking transaction or alternative channels like over-the-counter payment. So we are all about helping our merchants to accept cashless payments in whatever form, uh, in whatever medium. Today, we are basically the largest non-bank payment acquirer in ASEAN with over 370,000 acceptance points and over 100 payment schemes and uh, channels that we support across the region. So we are there at the merchant space, whether it's online or offline, but sometimes people don't really get to see us because we are kind of hidden. Right? You see the shop front, but you don't really see the payment device or the payment acceptance device, uh, but we are always there. I mean, having 370,000 acceptance points in the region is uh, something that usually you won't miss, but considering our role in the, in the, in the merchant BU, you, you, you may not see us, but you look properly at uh, where you insert your credit card, etc., or where you touch your uh, contactless card, you may actually see us uh, very prevalent everywhere in ASEAN. So I want to go a little bit deeper on that one is that I think what a lot of time people don't quite realize seems to be is that they see the merchant and then they probably think that the equipment that they touch, etc., will then accept their payment to the bank. So in their mind, what really happened is there are only two entities, uh, the bank and the merchant. But what you guys do is about providing the service in the middle and on top of that, you also help the banks or you help other payment provider, like for example, Alipay, to acquire the merchant to go into their ecosystem. Would that be correct assessment of explaining other bit of the business of the GHL group? Exactly. See, basically, the, the, traditionally, the simple relationship is basically a bank would provide a credit card terminal for a merchant to accept just credit card, right? Then the evolution of payment went into things like uh, credit card, debit card, and the e-wallet of this world. E-wallet basically, like what you say, uh, isn't it? the Alipay, the WeChat Pay, which is from China. Then you have the local wallets in ASEAN, which is like Touch and Go, Boost, GoPay, etc. To be able to consolidate all these payment types into a single relationship with the merchant, right? Here, the, the key different, you can add the word people usually use as a payment aggregator that we play a payment aggregator role. So what that means is basically, I will help the merchant to quote unquote, collect all the money that's owed to them on a daily basis from all the various payment scheme and channel and transfer back to them the next day so that they don't have to chase up for the money from all these payment schemes and they can just focus on their own business. So that's our core value and uh, also through the payment schemes at Alipay, we are able to bring them and help them proliferate the merchant base very quickly. That's amazing. Your motto at GHL is to enable everyone to accept electronic payment in ASEAN. Now, because of the current pandemic caused by the COVID-19, the enablement and the acceptance of the cashless payment are more important than ever. Now, looking at the bright side, how fast do you think this has accelerated the progress and the adoption of cashless payment? No, it's definitely, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, for the world with this pandemic, but uh, for our pay, uh, payment business, definitely helped to create a lot more awareness during this period, especially when lockdowns happen, etc. And it has actually helped people, the traditional merchants, which have their own stores, to really start thinking about things like uh, e-commerce. 
and how do I get to e-commerce? Hence, we actually launched our own eGHL Swift product about two weeks ago to enable a traditional physical-based merchant to be online within three days so that they can start selling and delivering goods to their customers. So the awareness is definitely at an all-time high uh, during this period across the ASEAN region. And uh, it really, really helps us. But I think there will still be a continuous challenge of uh, education and stuff like this for all these small retailers to get online and to get cashless. The other part of the awareness that uh, starts to happen is actually people ask, when we actually see that from the transaction uh, increase that we see, people are using less and less cash because of they didn't want to uh, touch cash because it's deemed to be dangerous, etc. with the COVID-19 virus. So you see, we see actually more contactless payment on the cards. We see more e-wallet payments, which the end consumer feels that they are, you know, they, they feel safer that way. So which is actually good for us, but you know, and uh, it definitely helps to proliferate cashless uh, payment in this region. Yeah. So at the same time, with this movement control order, which is what is known in Malaysia, or lockdown in place, uh supposedly take posing some challenges to the overall economy, what would you and GHL have to do in convincing the businesses whose revenue are falling to spend on adopting cashless payment though? I mean, apart from all of this, the danger of using the cash money, what other strategy would you have to convince them? I mean, our role is payment acceptance. So the first thing that we would really encourage them really to go online. You can still exist as a physical store even though after this pandemic, but you should always have the option of online so that if future lockdown or future uh, problems similar to this, then you're still able to do business. So your business is protected. So how even a physical store, go online. Have a presence online so that you're ready to take over. Online can take over your business if it needs to situations like this. The other thing, we are encouraging them also to uh, start accepting e-wallets, okay, which is primarily mobile payments on the phone, right? Uh, why that is because it's cleaner. And uh, we are also, because in this part of the world, a lot of the e-wallet issuers, the big players issuers, are actually still very keen in educating the market and also promoting the merchants. So for these merchants to actually grow, we encourage them to actually work with us to accept e-wallets so that we can work with them to get more promotions from the e-wallet issuers and more importantly, to get more visibility from an end consumer so that their business will be able to uh, grow with or without lockdown. Setting the pandemic challenges aside and also prior to the pandemic, what do you think are the key challenges in ASEAN market that are not adopting the cashless payment as earlier or as fast as like other countries? It's actually quite interesting in the asset market. We started a journey to actually on the assumption that for, at least for credit card, most of the tier one, tier two merchants are already on credit card, right? Hmm. And we were focusing on tier three, tier four, five, more smaller tier merchant. But as we started that journey probably about four or five years ago, we actually realized that a lot of tier two merchants, and these are merchants with 100 stores, 200 stores, are not fully equipped with accepting cashless payment. So we actually changed our strategy initially to actually focus on tier two and tier three because they are still not served, right? While we still have a separate team catering for the lower tier, right? So we are still covering the tier two, tier three, enabling them with all types of payments, 
Well, we forgot uh, three, four, five, uh, four, five, six, uh, tier four, five, six. And the interesting thing about tier four, five, six, basically is a very small, they call it SME, micro SME. There are millions in the region. You know, is uh, I think we can continue doing this for the next 10 years and we probably won't be able to cover everybody, right? So that's a good part in terms of the business, right? But the challenge just here is actually the merchant's mindset, right? They still have some uh, wrong uh, misconception of MDR, which is a merchant discount rate, which we charge to the merchants for the cash transaction as being too high, right? In reality, the charges varies, but it, 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 uh, it's not even more than 2.5% at the highest. So that assumption, we need to continue educate merchants that it's actually not that uh, high. And some of the um, products, like debit card products, actually the charges are actually less than 1%. So it's easily absorbable, right? The other challenge is also, again, mentioned that for them to actually have another e-commerce uh, presence, right? For the future, as well as for any uh, cases like a lockdown, right? They are slowly moving then, but they themselves also typically will have skill set problems, right? And normal mom and pop will not be able to operate a nice uh, storefront website, right? So what we do is we actually then help them to bridge that uh, by partnering with shopping cart companies, delivery companies to do that, right? And lastly, I mean, the last latest frontier, again, is e-wallets that really needs to be accepted by the merchants. Why? Because e-wallet is primarily designed for the unbanked segment. So typically, if you look at credit card, you and I would have credit card, but a lot of people won't have credit card, right? They may have a bank account, but they're not credit worthy enough to have a credit card. So credit card serve one segment. Then you have the debit card, which is based on your bank account, ATM card, basically. Yes, some people, you and I would have the uh, bank account and would have the ATM card and they can use that as a cash payment. But a lot of people in ASEAN, the lower income are what we call unbanked. So they don't even have a bank. So you don't have a bank account, you can't get credit card, you can't get debit card. So your only option is actually e-wallets. That's why the e-wallets guys like and financials and all you from China have invested heavily in the ASEAN on e-wallets is because they see the unbanked segment being the key to unlock the proliferation of uh, cashless payment. So getting merchants to embrace that is actually critical, right? Other things that we do to help to overcome this strategy is actually to focus on easy to onboard or sign up options for merchants. Like, again, things like EGHR Swift, which can get you to be an online merchant within three days. We have uh, what we call easy onboarding uh, requirement. Basically, traditionally, a bank may not accept a small merchant because of risk, but we actually, being a fintech, we take the risk and we will bring them on board and provide them capability, uh, capability to accept cash, cash statement. So that's some of the things that we have put in place. And uh, the key, if you ask me, continuous education, because it's like a new thing, still a new thing to the SME. So we just have to continue educate, 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 educate. So currently, there are two key de- development in the payment industry. So like you were saying that I think from what I see is that China is progressing well with its mobile payment or the e-wallet as well as the facial recognition payment. And I suppose that is partly as you were describing earlier, because they have a lot of uh, large segment of the unbanked customer, that's number one. And the other thing I suppose is because they skip pretty much the entire generation, skip the, the credit card cycle like Whereas in the Western country like Australia, they have very little update on the mobile payment, but they seems to be progressing towards the pay 
towards the path of like buy now, pay later. And I see that is primarily also because of this different path that different countries are taking, like I was saying, is primarily has to do with the historical adoption of the credit card and the mobile devices in the different region. My very question is then, what direction do you think ASEAN is heading? Okay, first of all, mobile payments in China and pay later schemes in Australia, for example, are actually two different things. Correct. Totally two different things, right? Basically, pay later scheme is, is backed by a credit card. Right. If you don't have credit, there's no pay later scheme, basically. Yeah, there's no credit to it. Right. So to me, pay later scheme in Australia, especially very prevalent in Australia, it's basically runs on the back of a credit card payment scheme. Mobile payments is primarily driven by e-wallets, Alipay and WeChat of the world, right? So those are two very, very different things to me. If you ask me from ASEAN perspective, we are definitely moving into a cashless payment. Uh, more forms of card payment will continue to grow, especially the debit card. But the most important one is mobile payments. Mobile payments will definitely grow in ASEAN. First, because the e-wallet issuers are making a big play in ASEAN. That helps with, you know, quote-unquote, throwing money into the market to create a new ecosystem. And uh, also the need to fulfill to the unbanked segment is uh, very, very prevalent here. So... In a nutshell, I think pay later schemes uh, is already happening in ASEAN, but they're doing it a different way in uh, compared to Australia. Australia, you have companies like Afterpay and Stated, etc., that will facilitate pay later schemes. But in ASEAN, primarily, the credit card companies themselves actually offer offers installment payments to their end consumer for the longest time. Right. So my view is in ASEAN, pay later schemes will coexist with. Uh, I will move towards cashless, whether it's debit card, credit card, or e-wallet or mobile payments, right? As for facial recognition, we'll probably have it in ASEAN, but I don't think it's going to be very widespread, at least not in the next three, four, five years. Why is that? Do you think is it more because of the concern or the limited understanding of the technology itself in uh, facial recognition payment? Yeah. I think the technology is actually very advanced, if you ask me, uh, facial recognition. Because like in Malaysia, I, I'm not sure about Australia. In Malaysia, I for my uh, passport, I, when I go, I go through uh, immigration in Malaysia, in and out, I'm 100% using facial recognition. So it's actually a very, and that's immigration, right? So I think the technology is there. But of course, regulators being regulators in all the countries in ASEAN, they are having things slower to adopt it and uh, put it into rules and stuff like this to correct. Don't forget, for facial recognition to work, eKYC needs to be in place first. You need a very strong eKYC policy for any government before facial recognition can be used. So Malaysia and a few uh, countries like Pachis are having sandboxes on eKYC, etc. But uh, it's still early days. Until that is sorted out, there's no chance for facial recognition. Do you mind to explain what is eKYC? <laughs> KYC is basically know your customer. Basically, oh, okay. as in uh, how, how do I register? Uh, uh, how should I say? Yeah. Identify myself correctly. Right? And, and E is basically electronically. Right? Traditionally, when you want to open a bank account, you go to the bank and they probably do a thumbprint against your ID, let's say in Malaysia, and then that's how they KYC you. Right? As things progresses, you need to move into eKYC basically Nobody's going to walk into a bank to you know do that anymore. You, you just so-called onboard yourself, you know, and prove your mm. identity. I see frameworks. 
So for my research is that GHL has a partnership with Splitit from Australia um, to offer installment payment solution for the GHL merchant. And that partnership is probably about 12 months in now. So what is the data telling you about its success so far? It's actually no good because and we have not really launched anything and we have actually mutually both have actually mutually uh, slow down the partnership. The main problem is basically in ASEAN, there are no bank acquirers who wants to pick up something like what is offered by Splitit. Because traditionally, as mentioned just now, traditionally in ASEAN, credit cards are already providing installment payments mm-hmm. just on the card. So you, you don't need another third party to provide that service for you. So the banks in Malaysia or in ASEAN are actually finding hard. Why do I need a, you know, a third party to facilitate this for me when I've been doing this for years? And it's a bit different from Australia, as I understand. Right. So any plan for GHL to build its own brand and payment system sometime down the track? We actually have a very strong brand in terms of our, as a payment acquirer. Payment acquirer, as I mentioned, is it a person enabling merchants to accept payment? We actually have a very strong GHL brand in that, right? I think what you're referring to is basically on the issuing side, meaning to issue payment instrument, like whether it's a wallet or a credit card, etc., to end consumer. Yeah, that part of the branding, you know, we are not thinking about that. Why? Because that typically we work with players like that and help them to consolidate, aggregate, and deliver their brand or their service to the merchants. So we unlikely for us to go into that space. Right. So in 2017, you completed a course competing on business analytics and big data with Harvard Business School Executive Education. What role does business analytics play in your overall strategy development at GHL? Huge, right? I mean, it's, it's really, uh, I didn't know so long ago, 2017, okay? Anyway, it's huge. I mean, as we all know that data is, I mean, there are a lot of words describing data. Data is king, data is cash, data is gold and stuff like this. But in reality is, we are in the data age and uh the future is all about data and how we want to analyze it, understand it, you know, and uh, to be able to deliver it for ourselves as well as for our partners, whether it's a payment partner or merchants. So the criticality of this is basically in the GHL world, we've got a lot of data, all a lot of payment transaction data, right? So traditionally, we just transact it and we don't really analyze it and uh, see how to use it better. We have since started doing that. And that has enabled our payment partners to say, let's say, okay, by understanding the data, I say, okay, which merchant is more active with your payment product at which time of the day, which time of the month, etc. And what we can do, what promotion we can do, what kind of segments and stuff like this. So, yeah, and uh, also sharing with the merchants, the big merchants especially, that you know uh, what we expect from what kind of transaction are coming in and stuff like this, and what hour, what time of the day, what time of the month of the year, so that people can plan better. We have since started doing a lot of this, and that is also a factor to help us to increase our transaction throughput, as well as then help my merchants' revenue to grow, as well as my payment partners' revenue to grow. So on that direction, apart from helping the payment partner and the merchant to understand the use of the services, I suppose given, like you were saying, given the amount of the transaction that GHL capture and process on a daily basis, do you think or do you see the possibility of going down the path of offer new value added services based on the share volume of the payment data that you have? 
say, for example, to understand the credit scoring is probably a good example from what I see that some of the telco are using their telco data to help with their credit scoring, that sort of stuff. Definitely. We have at least started doing some of this already in a few ways, right? One is actually, as I mentioned, you know, provide analysis to my merchant. Those are simple. Provide analysis to my merchant and partners. Provide a capability for them to do it yourself, do it themselves, analysis, right? And also to understand those data and derive new offerings for ourselves as well as for our partners, right? Things that for ourselves that we have started doing, like you mentioned credit scoring, we actually started, uh, based on our, our uh, data analytics capability, we actually started piloting uh, micro-lending to our merchants. We actually started selling micro-insurance to our merchants, all based on our own data analytics. So we have started doing that in a, still a small scale, but uh, you know, it's uh, something that we are again, uh, really focusing on in addition to just payments. That's interesting. One of the very confusing things that I often see whenever I am checking my credit card is that it never really have the trading name of the merchant where I purchase the product or the services, but rather it always have the registered business entity name. I'm curious to know that why the credit card provider or the bank are not able to sell the trading name of the merchant instead they can only see the registered entity. Do you think there is a gap in there where you can miss the gap? Again, I'm not too sure about Australia, mm. but uh, what I can tell you, I think traditionally the end systems capture one name, which is they'll use the actual registered name, right? Not the not the per se, right? I think that's what you're saying, right? So because that is what the entity that they're signing up with you get what I mean? It's not towards the brand, right? And I think they've been just continue doing that and without uh, any enhancement per se, right? So let's say from our side, what we try to do sometimes is actually we try to have another field, which is either you put a bracket and with the brand name that yeah. Really? Because it's not wrong for a bank to actually only capture the registered. Let's put it this way, the bank needs to capture the registered entity because that is the legal entity. Correct. Not the, right. So they're not wrong to to do that, let's be fair to them, right? Whether they can add in another name, I think that is uh, for down to uh, initiative of banks to start capturing that and sharing with the, uh, their own customers. Now, from the aspect of the culture and execution, what are your challenges in building your organization that started to focus a lot more on the data and analytics, as well as providing new services that is focusing on the data and analytics? Uh, it's a big challenge, okay, because inherently people are not focused, they are, they are, they are focused on doing their own work. A sales guy are just going to look for customer, an operation guy will just do setting up of terminals and shipping it out. People just, you know, nobody takes a back seat to look at data, right? So it's a big challenge, right, for us, I'm sure for everybody else as well. So what we decided to do is basically, we do, in a, and in actual fact, to be a data-driven organization, you don't need everybody to be data-driven mindset. You don't, right? So you actually need a key people across various departments to actually be very data-centric so that they can do the analysis, right? And share with the others and make decisions on it, right? So that's what we have done. So we, in each department, we, we, we have certain people focusing on analyzing data so that on a uh, weekly or monthly basis, they share with their own respective team to see how to better their own KPIs 
based on what is analyzed. So the trick here, I mean that to cultivate this data analytics mindset, we have to start small with key people that actually can really know how to analyze it and start really, really fading the word out and, and uh, helping the others to really embrace it over time. Given that GHL Group has its operation in six countries, how do you ensure that this culture of the data-driven organization that you are looking to build will be well adopted in all different countries where GHL Group has a presence? I use my country heads and my group heads a lot for things like this. These are to me very strategic uh, in nature. So basically, my group heads are basically my group operation heads. I did my group IT, uh, group CTO, group CFO, group operations, uh, group operations head, group risk head, as well as the country and all the business heads. All of them report to me. So I, I use them as a champion, quote unquote, you know, for their respective organization and country to push down this kind of uh, initiative. It has to start from the top. Data analytics has to start from the top because the, the bosses, you know, the HOD or business heads needs to really appreciate it before you can even convince your other guys to spend hours on it, analyzing it, and if you yourself don't believe in it. So it has to start from the top. That's how I do it. That's wonderful. So what is the next step for you plan for GHL Group? Basically, our, our strategy remains intact, COVID or no COVID, right? Uh, as I told the team, we will continue to acquire or enable more and more merchants across the region to accept payments. With data analytics, we are able to start offering merchants additional services, value-added services like micro-lending, micro-insurance, hopefully wealth management in some, some point in the future. To, and that's through data analytics to help my merchants with, and providing them with all these other products. So we are not going to stay with payments alone. Payments will get us through the door, but we do aim, as a fintech, do aim to provide much more services to our merchants, and that will be done through data analytics. That is so great to hear. I will end this interview with my usual question. What is one book that you would have give it to your younger self, and why is this book? Uh, this is a struggle for me because my younger self did not really read many books back then. <laughs> it would be intelligent. But anyway, I would recommend a, I don't think it's a very well-known book. It's called Disrupt, D-I-S-R-U-P-T by Luke Williams. Basically, I actually came to know about this book when I went to Google for a Google Spring training, whereby they actually, either one week course in New York, they actually challenges the norm. Right, so try to help you. The, uh, the book help you to question anything, everything, so that quote unquote you can disrupt the norm and to have uh, innovation leap. Right, so it's a, it's actually a very interesting book and fairly easy to read. And I think it's very important in this time of this time and age that uh, we really need to start thinking out of the box, the creative, and question all the norm, all the you know, BAU things that we've been doing for years and why, and asking why, 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 why we can't change it. So yes, I would recommend Disrupt by Luke Williams. Thank you so much, Danny, for your busy schedule to come on to this uh, podcast interview and uh, sharing with us about the payment industry and also how you are planning to, to build a data-driven organization that are adding more, uh, providing more value-added services using the payment data. 
Yep, my pleasure, my pleasure. I'm always happy to share. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you, Danny.